You're listening to The Gold Standard, episode 33, Francois Girard and Don McKellar, 32 Short Memories of a Film Classic. Everybody, I'm Brian Levine, and welcome to the Gould Standard, a podcast brought to you by the Glenn Gould Foundation. Once again, we're here to bring you conversations with some of the most remarkable people from all across the world of the arts. If film, theater, TV, drama, books, dance, music, poetry, opera, and visual art are your mood-enhancing substances of choice, you have come to the right place, my friends. But first, while you're stopping by under our illustrious illustrated neon piano sign, please do take a moment to press like, share, and subscribe. And if you just so happen to be listening on Apple Podcasts, please kindly leave your reviews, pose your questions, and be part of our community of friends and supporters. And also be sure to check out our past episodes featuring such luminaries as Tatiana Maslany, Mobley, Petula Clark, Michael Moore, Hilary Hahn, Ai Weiwei, Viggo Mortensen, and Sandra Radvanovsky. And to get more Simply Splendid sounds, words, and images, we'd be most gratified to have you pay us a visit at our website, glengould.ca. And while you're there, you will unavoidably notice a great glowing, hovering, inescapable donate button. That's because we're a registered Canadian charity and we rely on the gifts of generous patrons like you to help us continue doing our work. So please do give generously. Today, friends, we have a very special episode. This is another in our presentations of Glenn Gould at 90 podcasts. Yes, that's right. 2022 is the year that Glenn Gould, had he not succumbed to a stroke shortly after his 50th birthday, would have turned 90 years old. And we can only imagine what further creative riches he would have left the world in the intervening 40 years, or what he would have made of the world-changing technologies we all live with today. It's hard to believe, but his 1981 re-recording of the Goldberg Variations was one of the first recordings ever to be released on a compact disc. And now the CD is pretty uh, quickly going the way of the dodo. In his time, there were no cell phones, no internet, no CGI animation, No streaming or downloading, no social media, no virtual reality, and no 16 terabytes of data storage sitting right there on your desktop. And yet, against all odds, Glenn Gould has persistently refused to go gently into that good night. He continues to have passionate fans around the world, and new listeners and readers seem to be discovering him every year. Now, one of the greatest works to have contributed to the global Gould legend is the film 32 Short Films about Glenn Gould, which coincidentally was shot 30 years ago this year. With its audacious kaleidoscopic structure modeled on Bach's Goldberg variations, 32 Short Films was quickly recognized as a landmark in Canadian cinema, winning a number of international awards and many critical accolades. 
more importantly with its witty, moving, and insightful performance of Gould by the brilliant Colm Fiore, the film brought into clear focus the aspects of Gould's creative life, his public persona, and his personality that have made him such a continuing source of fascination and even adulation to this day. We're very fortunate today to have the chance to speak with two members of the creative team most responsible for 32 short films. We have today the film's director and co-writer, Francois Girard. Francois is one of Canada's finest directors with distinguished credits for his work in theatre and opera as well as film. His work in opera began with Stravinsky's Oedipus Rex and Symphony of Psalms, followed by numerous other productions. Particularly, I'd like to mention his production of Parseval, which was a season highlight recently at the Metropolitan Opera. And he works regularly with the Met, as well as the Canadian Opera Company, as well as numerous of Europe's finest opera houses. He wrote and directed Zed for Cirque du Soleil, which was their first permanent show in Tokyo, and Zarkana, which opened at Radio City Music Hall and is played in Las Vegas. He has directed acclaimed productions of Waiting for Godot and Kafka's The Trial. And he has made numerous other films, notably The Red Violin with Samuel L. Jackson, Silk with Kira Knightley, uh, Hashalaga, Land of Souls, and Song of Names with Clive Owen and Tim Roth. Don McKellar is also a triple threat, actor, writer, and filmmaker. He was a member of an important group of filmmakers who came to prominence in the 1980s, known as the Toronto New Wave, which included Bruce MacDonald, Adam Agoyan, Patricia Rosima, and Jeremy Padeswa. Already well-established as an actor, founding an independent theatre company, and appearing in numerous films before making his directorial debut in the amazing apocalyptic drama Last Night in 1988. He's been active on TV with Sensitive Skin, with Kim Cattrall, and my favorites, Twitch City and Slings and Arrows. He shared a Tony and Drama Desk Award for the book to the hit musical The Drowsy Chaperone. And it is such a pleasure and a privilege to have both of you here today. Thanks for joining us. Gentlemen, describe where you were in your careers when the idea of doing a film about Glenn Gould came your way. I guess I'm going to start, Don, because the... Uh... No, go for it. It started with you, for sure. I had just done my first feature film, which uh, uh, didn't have much of an exposure. And I met with Neve Fitchman to do a an adaptation of the play uh, Le Dortoir by uh, a renowned group, uh, Montreal group, uh, theater group, Carbon 14. And this is how I met Neve. We made this first successful film together. Uh, it went on to win all sort of awards. But also that was my meeting with Gilles Maheu and Daniel de Fontenay, the, the, the people who were uh, running Carbon 14, and Gilles being the, the main director. And they offered me to come and do a play with them. Um, they offered me to write and direct a play for Carbon 14. And I very quickly, I was very excited about the uh, this opportunity. And the f- first idea that came to mind was Gould. I don't know how it happened like that, but I remember rushing to the bookstore and buying whatever is available. And I started reading and I came up with the idea of doing a ghoul meets Gould play. And I started working on that and I actually started writing it. At first, I thought a TV special, a TV one hour, and then it became two hours. But the play became a film project. My film nature took over. And then soon uh, it became a, a film project. And Don came on board and we wrote uh, 32 short films. And so it was a pretty accidental, unplotted 
event, but like it just emerged out of uh, this little opportunity. And then it became the film that uh, we've made. And Don? Yes. Well, I was young, uh, as I recall, but I had already written a couple of movies, Roadkill and Highway 61, very films very unlike 32 short films about Glenn Gould. But I'd also acted and I had a theater company, a sort of experimental company that did fractured narratives. And I'd worked a little bit with Neve Fishman, our producer, who, who as Francois says, was the matchmaker. Francois told me his idea of the 32 short films, and immediately it was exciting to me because it was more like the stuff I was doing in theater. Uh, I thought it would expand my sort of work in film. And also Gould was 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 already very important to me. I I really, in high school, he was, I would listen to him like other kids would listen to Pink Floyd or something in the basement. And I, and I felt a sort of biographical connection based on my childhood in Toronto. And, and in fact, I just finished a course at university taught by Jeffrey Paisley. Paisant, Jeffrey Paisant. Paisant, uh, yeah, on, on Gould. It was... It was actually a philosophy course, of, uh, an aesthetics course. So I was quite um, well versed in the in the Gould thought, and uh, and then I connected with Francois right away. I was very excited about his ideas. He already had ideas for possible films in the thirty two, and uh, immediately saw the potential. I remember when when Neve told me the idea of a biography of Gould. It really struck me as a terrible idea because I knew enough about him to know that the life was very undramatic in a conventional sense. And I was already suspicious of Hollywood-type biopics, and I thought he would be a terrible candidate for that because, of course, his the sort of main dramatic event in his life is giving up performance, which is not, which is not the kind of uh, Hollywood plot you look for. So, But then Francois suggested this idea of 32 short films, uh, which is sort of an anti-biopic idea, and uh, immediately I saw the potential. But also, Don, also, like, I'd like to add to this, because I had a sense at the time that, you know, you just said you grew up, you grew up with Gould, uh, uh, and all of you, your generation, our generation in Toronto, like Adam, uh, Patricia, I, I remember yes. everybody had, like, sort of a first reaction that was, oh, are you sure? Yes. And then, uh, because I think you guys were, saturated with the intellectual uh, presence of Gould in a way that I was not. Like Gould yes, was more, true. more of a fresh uh, discovery for me. Like uh, I was not, I was not, I didn't grow up with a, a picture of Glenn Gould in the corner of my classroom. I would have been intimidated to do a straight biography of Gould uh, because it's true. I sort of probably revered him too much. And you had a little bit of distance with the, with the Quebecois thing. Probably if I if I knew all that I know now about Glenn Gould, probably I would have been intimidated too. Nevar producer tells a story about literally stalking Gould. I think following him home and watching him empty the garbage or something. Or I think he took a he drove around with some garbage to some spot for for some mysterious reason and dumped the garbage. And that was the inspiration of one of the film, like Longfellow, when he drives it drives in the rain. It was like vaguely inspired. Not for garbage, 
There was no garbage involved in our filming. <laughs> no, no, we cut that. <laughs> right. Incidentally, that is a remarkable coincidence, Dom, because I took Jeffrey Paisan's Aesthetics of Music course. Really? I think that probably we were in subsequent years because I think he worked on the book for a couple of years, but he also... I believe it was just published. Right. When was it published? I don't know. I don't even want to think about it. Quite a while ago. Yep. But he dragged us off, you know, amidst, you know, talking about Edward Hanslick and tonally moving forms. That's right. Hanslick was his big, uh, one of his big references. Off to the AV Center to see pirated copies of Gould CBC uh, programs. I don't know that he did that for you as well. Yes, that's right. Yes. I, I, I remember Jeffrey Bavid uh, as the, uh, I still have the book, like it was one of the one of many great books. Yes. What is it? Music and Mind or something? I can't remember. Music and Mind. It was the first book. And, and actually, as of the time that the Glenn died, it was the only book about Gould. Now there are over 85 books. Right. Right. Which, uh, yes, like probably there were a couple published after. But even, even at the time, entering the, the corpus of Glenn Gould, it was like almost like a... A, a blessing and a curse at the same time. There's so much yes to read and so much to see, and um, it was it was a lot of research. Uh, and now, of course, it would be too much. I don't know. We would have to be much more selective. Now, at that time, we we tried research. I I remember the the letters had just been opened. That was that was the the big uh, sort of coup we had. That was that was the latest addition to our writing because the uh, we had an assistant at the National Gallery. Was I not already shooting when, like... Uh, I feel like we it was just before shooting. Yeah, we were prepping. And then we found this letter. But but in uh, in any case, the... Um, well, of course, there was all of the writings and all of the uh, films of Bruno Mont-Saint-Jean. And uh, there's a lot of material, too. Which I remember, would, like, digesting all that was among the happiest times in my life. But there was a music. There was 110 hours of uh, official discography... And uh, I went, I remember going, listening to everything in chronology and making notes about whatever touched me or whatever I thought could be the subject of something or maybe something I love but didn't know what to do with. And then in many passes, going back and having a, like, it's almost like a distillation process where you, you keep 15 hours out of 110 hours and then going down to what's left in the film. And that I remember, uh, as Don said, we were young, uh, still are, but a little less. And, yes. uh, and, uh, I remember sitting in my home and this is at the time where you're not sure that you're going to be, you know, to be paid to do your work is a miracle. You say, Oh my God, they, they're going to give me money for this. And then, and then I remember like for weeks, months, like just, my job was to listen to Glenn Gould's music. Right. I'm getting paid to listen to records. That's right. Not much. We weren't yeah. paid much, but we were paid. That was, <laughs> and that was my job. And then for me, like for me, it was like sort of, there was a, so, such a sense of victory that, that I had made it to a point where listening to Glenn Gould was my mission in life. Uh, and, and, and it was an extraordinary moment, uh, very happy times, uh, as I recall. You remind me of uh, the the novelist Madeline Tien, whose um, book "Do Not Say We Have Nothing" uh, has this 
thread of Glenn Gould weaving through it. And she told me that during the time she wrote it, which is about two years, she the only thing that she did while writing was listen to the Goldberg variations over and over. And I said, how many times did you listen? And she said, oh, what? Which one did she listen to? In alternation, both of them. Uh, but she said between the two, the two versions about 10,000 times. Well, that seems a bit obsessive, I have to say. But but like Don, I don't know if you do that. But uh, as uh, I I've used that trick a lot of times because when you write, uh, you have it's always interlaced with other activities in your life, and when you go back to writing the same piece, I use the I often use the same music as a way to clock emotional clock to the work. That is true, as you know, uh, music triggers memories like nothing else and uh, you're right just it's easy to get back into this in fact i was listening to some of those schoenberg pieces there just last night uh, just to get back into this conversation and, and i was immediately back there yeah right. you know most films about classical music and composers and musicians are simply awful in fact, it, there's kind of this, this, <laughs> there's kind of this great tradition of really dreadful uh, Hollywood movies about composers. You know, if you've yes. ever seen any of the the really hoary old ones, like of course, Song Without End, Tales from the Vienna Woods is about Johann Strauss. Um, yes, Rhapsody in Blue is especially good, where you know George Gershwin's teach uh, father. Um, decides that, you know, Rhapsody in Blue must be a really important piece because it's over 15 minutes long. You know, he, he, <laughs> he judges its importance by the stopwatch, you know. Uh, and, of course, then there were Ken Russell's films, which... The Ken Russell films. I was hoping you would get to those. Well, they're, they're marvelous and awful simultaneously in, in their own special way. They're, they're actually some of the... I have more affection for them than I do for, for most of those biographies you're talking right. about. Right. But, but 32 short films really is... Uh, was kind of a, a breakthrough because it actually is a film about a classical musician that feels like the people who made it know something about the music and actually have an appreciation and some understanding of the of not only the the artist but of the art and I think that really sets it apart and it gives it this tone of you know solid research sophistication you know. Um, along with, of course, the, the multifaceted structure of the 32 films, did, did you actually consciously try to rebel, not just against the Hollywood biopic, but against the musical biopic? Well, the, the, uh, uh, where we're skipping the good examples, like uh, probably the, first, the one that comes to mind is uh, Amadeus, uh, uh, the Milos Forman uh, account of uh, Mozart's life. And uh, there are others. But I think before we even talk about making a film about a musician, like the biopic in itself is a very difficult genre, like because like it's, you know, like we often deal with adapting books to the screen and uh, like it's always a matter of like the difficult reductions and getting into uh, keeping a substance in a, a shorter form. To take the lifetime, to take a, a whole life, and put it on the screen, and especially a full life like Glenn Gould's life, uh, is a real challenge. So, and then it's very much a matter of finding the right angle, which I think Milos Forman found in Amadeus, where he's looking at the end of his life, the writing of the, the Requiem with Salieri at his bedside, and, and looking back at all at his life from that angle. So, that was a viable solution. 
ours was a uh, to look at uh, to, to to use the thirty two short films as a matrix as a narrative um, form to accept the, the the fragmentation and say okay we're not going to deal with the whole thing we're just going to show give you thirty two fragments of Gould's life and we'll do our best to find the most significant the most essential the most potent uh, elements and then it becomes the drawing fill the gaps from there. And uh, I think that position was not only uh, viable, but uh, was a lot of fun. Like I felt, I remember feeling like a a kid in the candy store, like picking 32, my 32 favorites. And, and it was great. I mean, the problem with most composer, musician biofilms is, as you say, this sort of reductive quality. And in, in fact, artist biopics, there's that moment, as you say, the classic being from Tales of the Vienna Wood, where he hears the bird singing the leitmotif from, from Blue Danube or something like that, turns Strauss into just a mimic. And, you th- and there's this sort of false moment of recognition in the audience where they say, oh, that's where he discovered how to be Strauss, which of course is, is necessarily reductive. And it's almost all composer biopics do that um, with performers slightly less because the equivalent moment is the performance moment where they discover their their voice or the biographical torment that inspired them to become a performer or something like that. And the thing about Gould that sort of saves you from those sort of traps is the fact that he's, the most famous thing is kind of his enigmatic quality and the sort of mystery of what made him unique. Of course, you could say how does we could have done scenes where he discovers how to tap instead of bang the keys when he was a child or something like that. But that's um, false, of course. The closest we got to that, I think, is the thing with him as a child where he plays the key and listens to the tone. But we sort of contrasted that with all these sort of contradictory stories, like the story of him being interested in the stock market. Every time we got close to the sort of revelation of his secret, or we sort of veered away. I mean, I think it came from Gould. It, it, that, that's what sort of saved us from that trap, I think. I, I think one of the, the, the great flaws of those, of those Hollywood films is that they're kind of addicted to the aha moment, right? Like, yes, exactly. Oh, you know, Strauss going in the carriage through the Vienna Woods and hearing the post horns and the, you know, and the bird calls. Yes. Because he couldn't have just worked it out himself. No, exactly. And also the the idea that 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 kind of creation, like being a novelist, is a lot of very solitary hard work, which is very uncinematic. Yes, exactly. But we have like in, in our film, like some haha moments, like, you know, when he's, he's, he's at the truck stop, uh, truck stop and then hearing all those voices. And we sort of like expose the audience to his creative process where he's getting the idea of mixing voices, which leads to his radio work, idea of the North and so on. But I, I think ultimately what it is, like, you know, you, you, you talked about the, what did you say, undefiable something in Glingul? Because we've listened, we've listened to, uh, uh, we've done all of that work. Like it's years of my life studying Glingul, then living with it and then traveling with the film. And then it, it followed me and, and dawns like for all those years, we're 30 years later. And it, that film is very, still very present in my, uh, world and people still talk about it. And then here we are today to discuss it. I think 
there's something attached to that experience, to my experience, that is, as you said, uh, Brian, undefi uh, undefinable. Uh, there's an, a gold emotion, like something that is bright, uh, inspiring, and pure in the artistic sense that is still touching my heart. That, I think, is ultimately the drive of the movie. We can talk endlessly about our formal ideas. And, you know, as a matter of fact, like how many times did, was I invited to discuss in a film school or elsewhere the peculiar nature or structure, like the very new structure of the film, where actually 32 short films is one of the most standard structure. It is written and built as a three acts uh, a narrative and almost following the Sid Field methods. Yes, in fact, Sid Field, I talked to him and he used it as an example of the perfect model film in the contrary version, like the sort of flip version. But you do have the three acts and the turning points. And then like, because you got the yes. performing years, you got the recording years and you got the, the later years, yes. spiritual like ending. 
And and I think like it, and it's almost as yes, well, you're giving away our secrets, but it, it's true that underneath the 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 job sort of as a writer was to sort of find the covert structure underneath the the sort of prismatic fragmentation. What I'm trying to say is actually the real driving, uh, the real drive of the film. Yes, I think we, there's obviously something right that we did with that. Like, and and uh, there was a lot of joy and inspiration and all of that. But I think ultimately the drive is Gould himself and that undefinable emotional, spiritual force that is like beyond our understanding, you know? If I may just say, this is really a compliment for Francois, but um, if I may, Francois, if you don't mind. Um, I don't remember last time you, I don't remember last time you complimented me. <laughs> Actually, I missed that. So please go ahead. One of the other things that drives me crazy about most musician biography films is that moment where we see the actor playing a famous performance, like, uh, uh, you, you know, the, and what, and we're supposed to get a thrill as the audience seeing an actor imitating a musician play, and it just always seems so fake to me. It, 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 and so Francois' brilliant strategy to avoid that was never to have Colin play the piano. We never see him play the piano, but it's never given weight. Uh, so we're never judging his skill as a mimic uh, or trying to, you know, as... The musicians in the audience aren't saying, well, that doesn't look like he's hitting all the correct notes. And and, it, and it's funny because I, I don't remember once anybody mentioning that or noticing that because this is a this is a biopic of a pianist and the actor is never, ever pushing one note down. I mean, I think that that was really smart. You can never satisfy the audience desire for, for seeing the famous musician. I always think if you're building to a moment like that, you're setting up a trap. Unless you have the performer can do it at the end, and then you better have a, you know. If you're going to end with that structure, you've got to have, you know, Purple Rain, like in the movie Purple Rain. It's better be a big, big performance that... Yeah, I, I think there's like, you know, after that, like I, I did make uh, uh, scenes, like performance scenes with actors who were not musicians. In Red Violin, we have we have that. But in, in this case, I think also the the other effect of that decision was that it positioned brilliant Colin Fiore in his own territory, in his own music, the music of the voice, the music of a speech. And, and here's a master who masters that. I mean, Colin could have done it. I'm sure he could have. He will, he will have done it. And he actually, Colin, like, I, I've learned so much, like, uh, working with Colin on this uh, film. And, uh, for instance, although he never plays the piano, he studied with his Alexander Method teacher. He studied Gould's position at the low positions at the keyboard and the low chair and all it does. And then what it does when you stand up. If you spend a whole life too low playing the piano, what does it do to your backbones when you stand up? And then what you see, Colin, all of his movements are derived from the piano playing condition of Glenn Gould, uh, uh, like, and then transported into dance, transported into breathing, therefore transported into speech. So it's all about the piano playing. Although he doesn't play the piano, his speech is completely contaminated by piano playing. So interesting. So Colin, Colin did a very interesting work with, with this. Yeah.
I want to get back to to Coleman how he was cast in his performance, but you you did mention that there's a more or less standard structure which in a sense um disguises itself with the 32 you know with the the matchup to the Goldberg variations but one thing that is not standard is the uh decision to intersperse some documentary elements interviews with people who knew Gould a performance with um Bruno Monsagent's quartet of an excerpt from Gould's string quartet and the um Norman McLaren film Spheres those were very non-traditional things to put into a a dramatized film. How, how did you come to that to that choice? I mean, I mean, it was part of the very uh, initial idea of exploding Gould and doing thirty-two fragments, and then there was the permission to use different styles and genre and visual language and narrative language. So uh, that was part of the very beginning, and that you're right is probably the idiosyncratic aspect of this the, the film more more than its thirty-two like. 32 seeds is probably if we made if we made the uh, um, uh, a study of how many uh, uh, sequences there are in the film in average, you would probably come close to 32. Uh, uh, that's sort of a, like a, a, a very natural gesture. Using different languages, uh, visual languages, narrative languages, styles uh, is probably more of a, a, a new thing or something different. The uh, but all of all of those genres actually, it was interesting to see how they contribute. You would think of an interview with Yehudi Menuhin as something that would reveal itself on the day. Uh, Don, you remember what's on the script? Like you do, Yehudi Menuhin. Like what I can, Brian, I can send you if you want. I probably could find it in my <laughs> computer. I could send you what was scripted before you, we interviewed Yehudi Menuhin. <laughs> yes, and then. And then he does exactly what he was supposed to do in the narrative structure. He was the one to comment on um, what it means to leave the uh, the concert uh, uh, life. Gould, that in 1966, decides that he's not going to play uh, ever again in concert. And here's a man whose whole life is defined by concerts at various ways and various stages. You diminuing commenting on that with love and respect, but like confirm. Completely. So we knew that. And yes, he, of course, we didn't script the interviews, but we had to, we said, this is what they, we hope that this is what the function will be to get them to talk, hopefully, about that period. We didn't do what Gould did to uh, Menuhin. Because, Brian, I, I don't know if you know that story. There's a point where Glenn Gould is sh- making a movie about Schoenberg, a film about Schoenberg, TV film. And uh, Yehudi Menuhin is invited to be part of that film. So he's flying and it, he's not like a, you know, he's sort of reluctant to come because Schoenberg is not exactly his cup of tea. But because Glenn Gould invites him, he comes to Toronto and then there's a car picking him up at, at the airport and driving him to the studio. And as he arrives at the studio, Glenn Gould gives him text and then pieces of papers, a stack of paper. And, and then uh, uh, Minuin says, oh, thank you very much. These are the questions. Glenn Gould says, yes, the questions and the answers.
Yeah, it's it's actually true that in about the last 10 or 12 years of his life, anytime he did an interview, he would write the questions, his own answers, and the follow-up questions as well. <laughs> yeah, you know. He was completely scripted. Talk about control. So, uh, Calm. Now, how did you come to cast him? Uh, did you know his work already? And what was he like to work with in in developing the part? You know, how much interaction and, and how much of a dialogue was there between you as the screenwriters in developing the role? Uh, if you ask the same question to Colm, you see that our answers are very, very different. Like my version of it, well, I think I owe a meeting Colm uh, to Deirdre Bowen, the casting director, Deirdre Bowen, who's uh, our, you know, a, a monument in Canadian cinema. And Deirdre, uh, at one point, uh, said, you need to see uh, uh, Colm Fjord. So we actually, she drives me to Stratford to see Romeo and Juliet and he's playing Mercutio and he's, uh, it dies before it's remission. And then, then we go to dinner. And then I saw him on stage and I see him at dinner and I were driving back and it's really clear in my mind that Colm is, is the man of the situation. Although... I will invite him to come back and do some screen tests in the sense of like, because I wanted to experiment at the voice and he learned some unlearnable texts that Gould had written. So it went on a little bit like where we, I just wanted, I guess, to make sure that my initial love at first sight was not blinded. Uh, uh, and then we did a couple of experiments, but like a, I was I knew, I knew from the moment I saw him on stage that he was a remarkable actor and like the the best choice for Glenn Gould. Colin's going to give you a much more complicated version where I I made him suffer through I don't know what but but in the end like um it was a pretty pretty perfect path uh, it was also falling in the same way that that film fell in Don's career my career like in for Colin it was he hasn't done like that many films and that's a, a, a sort of a breakthrough in the movies for him, for mm -hmm. all of us. Mm -hmm. So I, I think uh, Colin was very motivated and did the work, like the brilliant work. And he's a, you know, remarkable actor, like, you know, one in a kind. I mean, when we were thinking about an actor, of course, even though the film is about the fact that the way that he can't be defined simply, the challenge was always how to keep it unified. We knew that with a performer, we would never get an actor who would cover all the bases of Gould's personality as, as the script did it. You know, we sort of avoided, for instance, his alter egos, which might seem like one of the more cinematic things to do. But we sort of chose to lean into the virtuosic side and, and sort of the interior side. And that's what Colm immediately represented. We introduced him like an actor walking across the ice saying, I'm the one who's going to play Gould. And we lean into his strengths with the, with the film. And, uh, and that's what Kong is. He's got a bit of a show-offy side, uh, as Gould did. But also he has this sort of obsessive quality and this sort of virtuosic side that Colm is nothing if not a virtuoso. Exactly. And then the Gould meets Gould. Uh, as I mentioned at the very beginning of this conversation, Gulmi School was my initial instinct. Like, like it would be a great play. Like, Gul talks to Gul for an hour and a half was a possible viable thing because Gul is not only a piano player; he's a fabulous talker. 
Yes. He's a fabulous talker and a great material for an actor. And in the end, like what you get is, as a matter of fact, when Gould decides to compose, he supposedly left the concert life to dedicate himself to music writing. Well, he did Opus Number no. 1 and he did a couple of other very interesting things, but essentially the corpus of his work as a composer is the radio work, Idea of North and the, the North Trilogy and all of the, the Mennonites and all of that thing. And, and this is talking. We're in the talking field. And then you give that to Colin Fjord. And here, if we're talking about a piano player, he's also a, like a virtuoso talker. And you give that to an actor of Colin's caliber and the match is perfect. Right. Incidentally, it, it, it's fascinating the role that Stratford played in the Gould universe. And it makes me think that, you know, there's potentially a, a great sequel, 32 short apocryphal stories about Glenn Gould. So I'll, I'll tell you a short apocryphal Stratford story. Um, we did a, a video, which was very kindly and generously narrated by Christopher Plummer, the late great Christopher Plummer. And he was doing Tempest uh, at the time. You remember that production of about oh, 10 I years ago. That. Yep. And so he said, you know, the, the people who organized it at the festival said, do it offsite so that, you know, you can do it without any special fees and union in, in involvements and so on. So we basically had a friend whose husband was a crown prosecutor. So basically on a Saturday morning, they opened up the Stratford courthouse and we had a, an old courtroom to record it. And Chris came and, you know, I wanted to introduce him to the, the prosecutor, the crown counsel. And he said, no, no, I don't think it would be good because uh, actually we've met before. And on that occasion, uh, he was availing himself of my professional services, if you know what I mean. So apparently during the days when Chris was still imbibing a little bit, there were a few occasions. So anyway, we sat down to do the recording and, and Chris began regaling us with stories about how he and Glenn, back in the days when, when Gould was the uh, co-music director of Stratford Music, uh, were great buddies and that they were uh, great drinking buddies and that Gould was a great carouser with the women. And I was thinking, now that strikes me as... Um, a classic case of projection as viewed through the urban the, legends. Yeah, the wine glass scene from a low angle, you know, looking up through the through the, the dregs of the wine. So no, Glenn was never a drinker and he never was a carouser, but but Chris was absolutely swore that he was. <laughs> well, obviously it was projecting a little there. Yes. Uh, and probably even though he was a teetotaler, I'm sure that he was successful. Women were interested, I'm sure. Uh yes. Uh, Yes. And I'm sure Chris was jealous. I just didn't know what to do. <laughs> There's famous stories of the 30th studio with Barbara Streisand where he was panicking, basically, whenever yes. he felt these, uh, that attention. Yep. You see, it's so interesting to do this interview because we've added, at some point, we'd done quite a few interviews about Gould, but I forget, Brian, that you know the material better than me. Well, I wouldn't necessarily say that, but I have had the good fortune to meet quite a few people who were in his lives and get a few fascinating inside stories. Another one that, that I think you'll get a kick out of because it speaks to the enthusiasm of the fan base. So I've gotten to know the man who lives in what was Glenn Gould's apartment on St. Clair Avenue West. In fact, this gentleman who's a painter is the only person who's occupied that apartment since Gould's death. 
And by the time he moved in, everything had been cleared out. It took a year to catalog and send everything off to Library and Archives Canada, where you guys could go and study and research it. But one thing remained, and that was um, Gould had two pianos in his apartment at that time. And one of them was a, I think, a nine foot grand, and the other one was, I think, five foot six grand that's at Rideau Hall now. And underneath them was a shag carpet. Now, Gould apparently would get so immersed in his practicing and his music that he would have coffee cups on the pianos and he would gesticulate and send them flying across the floor. So what was <laughs> left was a shag carpet with dirty carpet. With, with a brown outline of the piano all around it. <laughs> the, yes, all in coffee stains all around, but it was a perfect shape of the piano. And now it's on the wall. Well, no, he, what he did is he, he cut out the piano outline throughout the rest, rolled it up and put it in his storage locker where apparently within about six months, someone had broken in and stolen it. Really? Yes. The fans are that, are that avid. Who has it now? Someone listening. Someone listening. With that disgusting <laughs> relic. That is a truly disgusting relic. And who would want it? But apparently someone did. Enough to steal it. Wow. Yeah. No, the fans, uh, I mean, Francois and I both have encountered the fans. And we understand we're fans too. Yeah. Now, in the actual writing, I mean, this is one of those you should never ask, but the who does what? What sort of a collaboration was it? And can you remember any notable disagreements about what to put in and what not to put in and how those got resolved? I don't remember disagreements. I remember lots of uh, exciting days in hotel rooms, like ordering coffee at the time I was drinking coffee. And uh, we worked it out a lot together. So we didn't have a chance to fight because we didn't have our separate camps. Well, as I mentioned, Don came during the process, because I actually had a first draft written by the time I meet Don, and that's probably a year of my life studying Gould by the time I meet Don. And Don, like, you know, like Don already was, as for many other subjects, Don is one of the few friends who I would qualify of uh, being, of, 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 of attribute erudition. Like Don has a very wide culture. And was, of course, very knowledgeable already in the Gould uh, subject matter. But I did the first draft, and then we started the discussion there. And it just became more interesting because uh, it was this new energy coming in. And then we sort of worked the same way with Red Violin, where like, but maybe in a different scale, where I did an early draft sort of painting, what I envisioned, and then Don took over because he's more of a natural writer. Both of us are in there, and uh, there's Fitchman's ideas here there, there too. And, you know, it's always difficult pushing for some films more than others, of course. But it was a true collaboration that uh, the most satisfying moments to me were moments when I was writing and thinking, oh, Francois will love this. This is really his kind of idea. I can see him getting excited by that. And that's really what you want from a collaboration like this, where, you, where I believe I was sort of thinking with Francois's brain. Uh, so uh, I'm not being coy, but I think we were pretty much in agreement. Yeah, no, I think I think like, it was a, uh, a great uh, meeting point for, for us. Like it was, we had the uh, common, common ground that we shared. And um, again, like for me, I remember, I don't think, you know, if I'm t <laughs> you're trying to replicate that later, that's 30 years ago. 
And <laughs> yes. I, I remember the years I spent working and writing on Gould and preparing that film and listening to the music and reading the books and meeting the people. And then eventually uh, like writing with Don and being in prep and then being on set shooting the movie and then editing it. Those years. I think today I can say are probably the happiest years of my life. Oh. And then I, I, I will have to give uh, uh, Gould some responsibility. There was, there was a light shining over that time. And that was the Gould uh, uh, light. I don't think we can explain further than that. Like it's uh, undefinable, as you mentioned earlier, Brian. But there's an artistic ideal in Gould that I was, I, I was very much aware of at the time. And I think what Gould achieved on this journey is what any artist would dream of achieving, which is full dedication, complete dedication, complete immersion into the world of ideas and the, the beauty of art. And, and that's been an inspiration since then for me and, and many, obviously. I think that in some ways, Gould, with his fascination with 20th century music, was still in some ways a very romantic figure in terms of his ideas of the, the moral duty and mission of the artist. You know, the idea of art as a redemptive force and all of that sort of thing. And yes, interestingly enough, you know, even though some people in this cynical age may think that that's a pretty passe approach to what creators do, it still moves people deeply. And I've, I've experienced this. My first real taste of it is actually a Russian story. And when I was fair, fairly new in this job, uh, I had a visit. Our offices were actually on the campus of the University of Toronto. And I got a call and I, I was told that there was a visitor who wanted to come and see us um, at the, the gate. And that she spoke almost no English. She was Russian. And she was looking for the Glenn Gould Museum. And I said, well, there isn't a Glenn Gould Museum. By the way, over and over and over again, I get people knocking on our door wanting to see the Glenn Gould Museum, because, and they can't believe that there isn't one. Where is it? That's a, that's a project, Brian. Brian, you've you got to come up with some. Honestly, I've tried. When Canada gets better about uh, devoting resources to celebrating its great achievers, 
we will have not only a Glenn Gould Museum, but also a Francois Girard Museum and also a Don McKellar Museum. Yeah, right. <laughs> oh. Let's start with Glenn Gould. Like, we'll we'll start with <laughs> but anyway, this, this, um, this um, woman came and fortunately I was able to find a graduate student who was Russian who could translate. And it turned out that this woman was a professor at the Moscow Conservatory. And she said that she had heard Gould when she was a little girl. I don't think live. I think it, she was too young for that, but on record. And it transformed her life and that she listened to all of his recordings and came to the conclusion that he was the most spiritual musician who ever lived. And, and I'm only repeating exactly as this was translated to me. I'm not embellishing. Um, and that inspired her to become a pianist and a piano teacher and that she had spent the last decade saving up her money so that she could visit Toronto and she said to even be in the city where he lived was for her a spiritual pilgrimage. And, you know, of course, that kind of very hyperbolic talk makes you feel a little uncomfortable in a way. But the, the depth of her sincerity was absolutely clear. And then she basically gave me as a Canadian a telling off for not having a Glenn Gould Museum. You know, she explained that, you know, in Russia, they have museums for every notable, you know, including, you know. Yeah, yeah, uh, as I just saw, yes. Yeah, Dostoevsky and Pushkin and Pushkin's dog, you know. Stanislavsky, yes, yeah, sure. Anyway, I also had a similar experience, um, and these are with people who aren't musicians. At a film festival, there was a Glenn Gould Film Festival in Berlin that lasted a week back in 2007. And I'd gotten to know this woman who was, um, she described herself as, you know, a housewife. She literally said, you know, ich bin ein Hausfrau. So I'd gotten to know her. And at the end of the festival, of course, they played Bruno Monsergeon's film of the Goldberg, the 1981 Goldberg Variations, which, if you'll remember, at the end of the aria da capo, the, you know, the final repeat of the, of the aria, he brings his hands up off the keyboard, places them together and bows his head almost reverentially and of course it feels like a coda to his life when seen in retrospect this yes woman came afterwards and she was sobbing like like a child i mean she grabbed my jacket she s completely soaked my lapel she could not speak it was really astonishing In a larger sense, it reminds us about how powerful art can be, not just Gould or Bach or a given piece of music, but what an essential part it can play in people's lives. Yes, and in war times. Uh, which we are in now, yes, for those who listening to this at the future. I was in uh, Russia just recently. Uh, as a matter, I was there when the Ukrainian vengeance started, and um, no one believed that it would happen, so that that's not... My point, my, my point is that like 
I, I can tell uh, you that the very brief uh, visit of Gould in, 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 in Russia in 1957, when he played in St. Petersburg, like the echo of that is still felt nowadays. Like in my discussions with artists, uh, musicians, Gould will come up at uh, one point or another in the dinner or in the, uh, in the work. And there's this amazing story, like it's one of my favorite, uh, where Gould comes to play in St. Petersburg, 1957, and the the first Goldberg had just been published, but not well known yet in that theory, in that field for some reason, because that was really a world event. And when he plays the first half of the concert, the hall is half empty. And, uh, but he plays, you know, like it's part of the game. And then they go to intermission and whoever was in the house went around like True St. Petersburg, true neighborhoods. This is a time where there's no cell phone. There's probably a couple of phone booths with a lineup. By the time the intermission is over, not only was the hall full, but there was an, a, a similar amount of people outside in the public, in the piazza, like trying to get the vibe of that concert. So that gives, I think this story gives a, a sense of the impact that Gould had on music lovers, but on people in general, I think. Well, I can attest to that. And actually, I'm going to take a brief cut, but I want to bring to the camera a little object that kind of illustrates that point. So um, we'll take a pause. I'll be right back. I'm holding in my hand, if you can see it, an object that was given to us as a gift by a fairly distant member of Gould's family. And what this is, is it's called a Palech miniature. It's a piece of very widely available folk art uh, from Russia. And this was actually given to Gould by students of the then Leningrad Conservatory, now St. Petersburg Conservatory, after his final performance in 1957. And the inscription, which you won't be able to see very well in Cyrillic, basically translates as, uh, it has the date, and, um, and it says, uh, to Maestro Glenn Gould from students of the Leningrad Conservatory, the fire of your inspiration will illuminate our lives forever. Yep. Yeah. Which is pretty astonishing. The other thing, of course, is that he was subversive in his own way even then because he, um, after the actual formal concerts, uh, the days following in both cities, he had lecture demonstrations at the conservatories and the authorities assumed that he would be talking about the music that he'd played the night before Instead, he basically presented uh, hour-and-a-half lectures on the second Viennese school, Schoenberg, Berg, Weber, right. which was absolutely forbidden music. It was not— It was forbidden, yeah. yes. And as it was explained to me, the professors and students were there, and there were people like, you know, Rostropovich and Vladimir Ashkenazi and Tatiana Nikolaeva. Um, so they were absolutely fascinated. This was a new world to them. The professors all got up and left because they were con convinced that there would be some KGB in the audience too, and if they didn't show that they would the be jailed of disapproval, yes, so they would be. It wouldn't go well for them. So they got up and left. Uh, but the students basically were introduced to this music because Gould just said, "You know, the hell with it. I'm going to talk about this stuff." He played. It. He performed it. He too, did. He did. He, he actually did. Schoenberg. Yep. He, he yeah. did. Yeah. I mean, we all have stories of cult-like federation of Gould. I remember when the film was released, going to this sort of bar in Tokyo where they 
dressed like Google, my <laughs> distributor thought we'd be, I'd be fascinated, which I was. But it's funny you said the, you used the word romantic when you started this because I was listening to Gould last night and thinking it was, again, that was a Schoenberg, and I was thinking it's so romantic, which of course seems like the wrong word and a word that Gould would probably resist because the performance is not what we think of as romantic. It's so precise and clear and unsentimental, but it's moving in a way, uh, the sort of philosophy behind it. And, and as you say, this idea of the artist and the voice is sort of this continuation of romantic. And, and it's that contradiction between the sort of clarity yeah. and the emotion that I really think is unique with yeah. Gould. I remember when I was young, listening to him playing Bach was the first time I thought, I understand what a voice is, a musician's voice is, apart from a composer. He is bringing something that only he can bring. And I, I hadn't really understood that until I heard Gould. For then I was listening for the composer, I was listening to the music. But it's sort of a miracle that he's able to imbue this voice in whatever he performs. And that's sort of, I think, what he took. What he exemplifies to a lot of people. Uh, the voice is a really good way to uh, name it. But the it's a, like, well, when it comes to romanticism, the elephant in the room is that he completely skipped all romantic pianistic repertoire. Like he he went from first Vienna school to second Vienna school, and in the middle, all of the romantic repertoire, the Liszt, the Chopin, the Schumann, the Schubert, all of that is out the window. He didn't play it except for few rare bootlegs recordings. So in concert, he touched at it a little bit, but none of, none of it in the official discography. And yet, and yet the romanticism in his life uh, the, uh, is, is quite, is, he's such a romantic character. And it's funny because the, yeah, anyway, so uh, much to say about that. That's a, probably another conversation right there, like another podcast, uh, Brian. Absolutely. Well, and listen, I'm I'm I could go on and on, but I'd like to get back to the actual production because one thing that strikes me about the film, which I I watched again a couple nights ago, is for a relatively inexperienced I don't want to say that pejoratively, but if director, there is such a cinematic quality. The use of the camera is so fluid and supple. Particularly, I, I think of that wonderful scene of Gould in the recording studio where Colm sort of, you know, is literally dancing and he comes, goes down to the ground and he's seen through this forest of microphone stands. You know, it's really, you know, for something that is in many ways quite an interior presentation, it really moves. I mean, were you just born this way, Francois, or was this something that, you know, your work with your DP helped you to find or that you just were inspired by the subject matter to create the visual complement to the music, to the musicality? Oh, I, I would know how to uh, respond. Uh, thank you for your <laughs> kind words. But uh, that day was like any other day that so you get there and you're trying to capture whatever is there to capture. What I remember from uh, that scene, I think it's like, again, I think it comes down to uh, Colum's performance. Um, and I remember... Colm and I, we were battling that dance a little bit and we did something that day that probably today I wouldn't do because I might be uh, me too'd or canceled. But I remember going to Colm and putting my hands in the his lower back and saying, Colm, like it was take four. I think I remember it was take four. We've done three takes 
that none of us was feeling, that Colin wasn't feeling and I wasn't feeling. And I went to Colin and I put my hands in the lower back and I said, you know, if anyone is interested to know, this is sex to Glenn Gould. This is the erotic experience. Then Colm gave take four, and that's what's in the movie. It's dancing with Bach in a very erotic way, and it's like full of that passion. And whatever camera work we did, I think is secondary to that idea. And again, I'm going about to uh, Colm's performance because you know it's one thing to hear that, and it's another thing to do something with it. And then this, I I thought was a very a, a private, not so private now because I'm saying it, but uh, uh, a private exchange between a director and an actor. And, uh, we leave it at that and we, you know, one day we'll edit it and the film comes out and there is a somebody, a critic somewhere, who wrote exactly that, that he, like this idea had somehow siffled through that guy or that woman who wrote the erotism of that scene yes, and said, use exactly my word. This is sex to Glenn Gould. This is erotism to Glenn Gould. And, and I was, uh, I remember being amazed at <laughs> how, did, how did it make it there? And right. it makes you aware of the of power of our medium that yes, we can, we can communicate stuff that is uh, and a lot of nonverbal, powerful ideas or emotions that can actually go through if you just can't name them and write, work with the right people, like working with, with Colin, who's a, a remarkable acting virtuoso. Francois, being a little modest, I feel like Francois' work as a director, which I saw before I took the job because I, I watched Le Detroit, which he had just done, as, as he said, and I felt, okay, this guy really knows what he's doing. He's, I don't know can't say where it came from, but um, it was very important to me that the film looked good and it had a sort of intentionality that the work was was disciplined in the way that Gould was and it could act as a sort of counterpoint to the music and to the story. And so I think it can't be dismissed that Francois' work is very exceptional, you know, and not particularly flashy. Often it's just a single shot for... For a scene, but again, it's that um, commitment that I think really carries the film. And I, and I think it's it's also 
one of the reasons the film is a landmark because, you know, this was a time when it was still such a struggle to get a Canadian film made and the resources were so slim for many of them that a lot of them, even if they were very good, didn't necessarily always look very good, right? I mean, it is a very, a very beautifully polished work. And then we, we tend to forget, we tend to forget that these films are made in a system, the Canadian film system, that is being threatened every year, like there's somebody to question its validity or its use. But there's a system eventually that says, yes, we're going to give you, that was not much money. Like it was like a, a, no. a record low budget, but <laughs> there was still somebody to sign the check. Right. Uh, an institution at Telefilm Canada and uh, mainly Telefilm Canada to put the money in. And <laughs> I remember, not that it was, like it was quite challenging. I remember the, the analyst at the time, uh, I, I wouldn't even remember the name, but I remember being in a meeting with Don and Neve and this guy is at the end of the table and he's, he is there to give us his reaction after reading the script. And he's obviously very embarrassed. Like he doesn't know how to talk about it. It's very awkward. And he's he end up saying, well, this is really, uh, really good, really great. But do you really mean like, do you, are you guys thinking that this would be a film that we would project in theaters, in theaters, and then and then I remember my answer. I remember very clearly. Like I said, well, I don't know. This is your question that you need to answer. Our question was like, how do we write a movie about Nagul? And what you read is our answer. Now you have to answer if if you think it has a shot to be on screens. And and a couple of years later, it had played on th in thirty five countries, uh, one year in Paris, and and so on. So then it had a real life, but. There is a system that allows it to happen. And uh, the same film or us in a different time or in a different country wouldn't have been able to do it. So we have, yes. so Canadian cinema is like, uh, we have to give credit to what we built that allows us to do our work. Uh, this one and everything that followed in Don's career or in Colm's career. Yes, because despite, despite that assessment, they did go for they it. They did. <laughs> we did see the money. <laughs> they did. They did. Well, so we're, they did. we're grateful. The guy, the guy probably thought he would lose his job. Well, he, he ended up being, he ended up being a hero. Um, and, and that actually does bring us to the reception of the film. Can you describe what that was like? I mean, you've alluded a little bit to it, but, um, and also were you surprised at, at the way it was received? Yeah. Yes, because uh, I, and I have to say that uh, probably Don can say the same thing. So we had our share of successes and also failures in career. That's the way it goes, right? Like we go, but I've never seen that again, like this kind of anonymous voice uh, for peace. And we were so not, we came from such a humble place. My, I'd done a first film that was not well received where people said, oh, he's got talent, but like, uh, you know, let's give him a chance. Probably if Glegu was my first, very first film, that it would have affected me because the, 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 what we read was, didn't make any sense, right? It was so like over the top and it was unanimous in every country. But at that time I was able to put it in perspective and know that, you know, what comes to you, it's like, if you do if you do a Parsifal and everybody like is over the top, like you have to give Wagner the credit because the piece is an incredible masterpiece. And then in this case, I think we collected a lot of the 
Gould aura. Like we were, we were under a, an incredible bright umbrella and we did, you know, <laughs> we did the good work. We did the good work and we were sincere and we were humble and we were dedicated. Uh, but I think ultimately the impact of the film is also you can, if you study how Gould's impact with his first Goldberg, with his last Goldberg, with everything in between, uh, you understand what kind of reception we received for the film. Right. Yes. As Francois was saying, meetings like that telefilm meeting, my expectations were very low, actually. I felt, I don't know if this will ever show on screens, but I remember saying to my girlfriend at the time, I really loved this movie, you know, like, I don't know if anyone's ever going to see it. So it's a very satisfying thing when you can feel that your work, proud of your work, regardless of how it's received. And so it was really a, a bonus. I remember seeing it in Berlin. I, I mean, every screening, I was sort of astonished that, that people took it as seriously as they did. And it, it was sort of validated. I remember one once at an airport picking up a, a well-known self-help book and reading a quote from Gould in the, in the book. And I thought at the time I knew I knew his writing very well. And I said, oh, I, I can't remember that quote. I can't quite place it, even though it's very familiar. And then I remembered that was, I made that up. I wrote, I wrote it in the movie. And then I looked at the back and the attribution was actually the film, although they'd said it was Clayton Hood quote. So oh, like, that's hilarious. Like, oh, well, so now that that's somehow we've, uh, we've meshed with the material so much. That, but that something very validating. One accolade we got with 32 short films that was actually probably the biggest I've ever got in my career. And it didn't come, oh, yes. in, it didn't come in yes. the form of a prize. It didn't come in the I know form what of this a, is going a, to be. A, a review. And when it came, I remember calling Don immediately and we weren't sure. Like, and it's uh, one day, like the Simpsons are doing 22 short stories about Springfield. <laughs> yes. And we say, hmm, it's not 32, it's 22. Is it really us? Are we getting the Simpsons stamp? Right. Um, but we weren't sure until like years later when they actually published a book where there's like a like complete confirmation that they were referring to 32 short films about me. Which is one of the best Simpsons episodes, actually. So that was, it's true. But it's true. I don't know about Francois, but I probably got more calls about that than about anything. That that is a, a actually a fantastic thing, and it also goes into the 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 sick and twisted minds of of Simpsons writers that they would actually make that connection. I think I read that they chose twenty two because that's how many minutes of actual screen time an episode an episode of a thirty minute animated show is. That's true. It's a TV half hour. That's true. Well, this has been amazing, and I know that you know the reactions to the film are. Um, still strong and, and vibrant because I've been at screenings, for example, at uh, at the Toronto Film Festival when they've uh, reprised the film, and they, I think, were involved in um, having a restored version of the negative uh, produced a few years ago, and you know the re response is still very much the same. So you know that's obviously a tip of the hat, and I'm, I'm glad to say, Don, that you did not end up getting typecast as, you know, really obnoxious uh, <laughs> concert promoters because you actually did make a, a, a cameo in the That's film. That's true. Uh, so believable, right? Yeah, at, the, <laughs> at the, the last ever concert. I like to think I'm the reason he gave up. 
caustic performance. <laughs> well, and a big favor to all of us because that that way he made more records. Um, anyway, before we go, uh, I just want to thank you for this. And obviously, we'll be talking to Colm separately, and, and that will be part of this episode. But you know, I, I'd love to find out about current and future projects. Uh, I know that you do a lot of opera, uh, Francois, so I've always thought that a Glenn Gould opera would be a great idea if you could find the right composer. Don, what do you think? Well, yeah, who would be the composer? That is the question. Well, I mean, like, I, th- I think, like, the, the, that would, that's a big question, but uh, how about, like, r- writing the book first? Like, I don't know. We can talk about that. Let's talk about that. We're not sure yet, Brian. Okay. Like, we need, <laughs> we need, we need, we need some time. Right. Someone very, very interior. Yeah. His, it's hard to picture his voice. I still think, I, I still think I have a play to make. Uh, uh, if you're interested, Don, we can discuss that. But the play I didn't do, like Ghoul, Ghoul Meets Ghoul could be turned into a play. It would be a great play. But then you, how would you have this same actor playing both parts or? CGI, hol- holography. That's hard on the stage, but possible these days. Absolutely. This is a, a chance for me to, to be nosy and find out about your current and future projects. What are you, what are you guys working on right now? Well, I, I just returned uh, from Russia, uh, and that's uh, hard to say briefly, but the, we had the premiere of Low and Green at the Bolshoi, uh, which is a combination of five years of work, right? Like it's always a Wagner combined with opera, combined with the Met, right? where these hire singers so long in advance makes it always a long journey. And Mike, the combination, the first result was like Bolshoi theater, uh, on February 24th, which is the exact same day that the um, Russia invaded Ukraine. Oh. Uh, and I had uh, Ukrainians in the audience, in the orchestra, in the chorus, and my Ukrainian soprano, uh, who sang that night, Anna Nishirova, like she actually was crying in my arms a couple of minutes before the curtain went up. Unbelievable. Yeah. It's horrible. And, and, and then it, it, it came, you know, you were talking about art and redemption. I think like this is the best premiere I've ever had in my life. And it was infused with that energy of prevailing energy. Like it's, it's just as if we all gathered in that room and thought that art could save the world. And I believe, I believe it, it can. And I believe it did. And I believe we have to stick committed to that idea that, uh, Probably art is the best antidote to war because it's fundamentally infused with empathy, and and war is the exact opposite. It's the lack of empathy. So uh, right now we're going to the middle of that. I'm still in touch with all these guys that got Russia got uh, cut out of, of the world at the moment. I made you know very dear friends. Uh, so it's really uh, it's very emotional. Yeah, absolutely. And and is that production going to be uh, presented in, in on other stages? Yeah, it's be presented uh, there again, uh, supposedly. Like and and uh, but God knows what is the future of the Bolshoi right. in in Russian arts and in Russia and more importantly in Ukraine. It's programmed like in the year of the Met uh, in uh, February twenty sixth right. of two thousand twenty three. So that'd be a, a Met premiere, the same production. Right. It was a co-production. So with the, with the Met, then you'll you'll start rehearsals in June or or, or maybe uh, May. Like it's ridiculous how how far in advance you you start on a, on a uh, 
Yeah, the yeah, but the show is written. Uh, it's a co-production with the Met, and the Met has a lot to do with it. But right. the, the show is written with Russian artists and Russian collaborators, and they are now all persona non grata. You're right. Yeah, I'm. 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 You know, like I, I got two calling while we were talking, uh, uh, so I'm in touch on a daily basis with with uh, uh, them, and it's. Um, it's very, it's very troubling. Yeah, I mean, the, the the most important thing, of course, is for the violence and the and the death to stop the the killing. Yes, and, yes. And, you know, s- sort out the politics later, uh, please, around yeah. the table. Yeah. Don, what are you working on? I know what you're working on. Well, you make me, my work seem very crass, but <laughs> uh, hopefully, it has some no, it, uh, some relevance. It also involves war. And I'm working on this uh, adaptation for HBO of this book, this book right here, The Sympathizer. It's a Pulitzer Prize winning book. It's going to be a seven part series uh, set in a, the Gould period in the 70s, but unlikely to have Gould music. Although we'll, we'll, we'll see. You never know. And I do have to say, kind of a, as a, a bit of a sum up, you know, Don, again, a few nights ago, I watched last night, which felt, you know, oddly yes. of this moment. Unfortunately. In many ways, the best apocalyptic film ever made, because it's a human film. Thank you. But also, you're part of, even though I don't believe it was on the writing or directing side, you know, one of my favorite pieces of Canadian art ever, which is Slings and Arrows, which also... You know, every episode, as absurd as everything is, comes back to those those magical moments when Shakespeare comes alive, and it does capture that sense of the redemptive power of art. That that is very much, I think, yes. at the heart of of that whole series. Which, by the way, I've back when we dealt in DVDs, I've given away to many people, including some famous people, because I feel that it represents what we do and try to do in this country so well. Thank you. Uh, my character is not responsible for those redemptive moments, but uh, I, I, I agree with you. Your assessment entirely. <laughs> I You're the opposite. You. And Colm is in it, and he's not very redemptive either. Yes, that's right. No, yeah. that's true. But anyway, well, thank you so much. And, and everyone out there, this is a great year to see 32 short films again. After you've seen it, of course, you're going to want to go back and listen to all the records that are in the soundtrack because it's such a a great poem musically when all of those things are, so to speak, collaged together and related to, to the scenes in his life. Thank you so much. And, um, and thank you for helping us in this first episode paying tribute to Glenn Gould at 90. And let's not forget, we, we want the coffee-stained uh, carpet back, please. <laughs> exactly. Please. <laughs> yes. We do an interview with that carpet too. The stories it has seen, I'm sure. Yes. Thank you, Brian. And thank thanks also to the Gould Foundation for their continued support of us in the film. Thank you. And and please, please keep doing amazing work. We'll try. And that brings to a close our conversation with Francois Girard and Don McKellar 
reminiscing about 32 short films about Glenn Gould, as well as their own careers, which are both distinguished and contain gems, which I hope you will take some time to explore. And I'm happy to say that for our next episode, we'll be joined by the star of 32 short films about Glenn Gould, the alter ego of Glenn Gould himself, Colm Fiora, one of Canada's greatest actors. We caught up with him while he was preparing for a production of Richard III at Stratford Shakespeare Festival, and uh, I think you're going to enjoy it. And Rudra Priya, I thought that was quite a delightful and interesting conversation, quite an insight into the production. Do you have some words of wisdom about the Glenn Gould Foundation that our friends should know about? Absolutely. If you're interested in keeping up with the Gould Standard podcast and more work from the Foundation, be sure to follow us across social media on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at the Glenn Gould Foundation. And remember, the Glenn Gould Foundation is a registered Canadian charity, and we rely on the support of arts lovers like you to continue bringing inspiring stories to life. Please consider giving by visiting our website, glenngould.ca. I'd also like to add a special note for listeners in Toronto. 32 short films about Glenn Gould will be screened on September 27th, 2022, as part of our Glenn Gould at 90 celebrations in collaboration with TIFF Cinematheque. So join us then. And again, thank you so much for joining us on the Gould Standard. And do join us next time when we continue our Glenn Gould at 90 celebrations with a stimulating conversation with one of Canada's greatest actors, Colm Fiore.